house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. See, Teresa, please inspire me. Just let me meet one of those beautiful golden-haired girls and I'll write a love story. One of the greatest of all time. Can I get you something? Coffee with cream. We call this stuff coffee. Maybe it's just water after they boiled your filthy shoes in. I hope you die of heart failure. Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that invites a heroin-addicted Jim Caviezel to live in our garage. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer at Decider.com, Joe Reed. I am here with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hi, Chris. Hello, Joe. I am so excited to be here today for uh, talking our deepest cut yet for our listeners. It is true. Very excited. You do love a deep cut. I love a deep cut. The more obscure, the more obscure the reference, the better. And I feel like if we are talking about this had Oscar buzz as kind of reaching into the back catalog of movies that we forgot we knew about. This feels very sort of like we're triggering the subconscious here where this is a deja vu kind of a movie of just like, Oh, right. Like kind of a hilarious deep cut too, because with the pedigree on this, or at least the people that are attached to it, it's really weird that it's such a deep cut. Like this movie that faded into nothingness. It faded into nothingness almost immediately. It's uh, if our listeners are very sharp eared, we will, they will have recognized that, thudding head hitting the formica top of a diner table as belonging to Colin Farrell from the 2006 depression era romantic drama Ask the Dust. Start Colin Farrell, Salma Hayek, among others. We'll get to it. Uh, it's, that clip of her saying, I hope you get heart failure it, to be my ringtone or something. Yeah, that's that. I feel like that's one of those uh, all purpose. You'll be able to use that a lot. Just um, the cadence of Salma doing a diss anytime is perfection. It's true. It really is true. She should do. You know how like the Real Housewives will record a birthday greeting for you because that is how available they are for ancillary income do you know do you understand about this as like a, <laughs> I, I as a didn't phenomenon know anything about that but i am zero percent surprised find your gayest friend ask him uh he it's a whole thing i have yet to have gotten anybody to do that for me for my birthday and it's not like i'm throwing it out there i'm just saying soon enough this could happen to me if i have good enough friends um anyway Salma Hayek could just record various sort of greetings and sayings, whether they be sort of, you know, famous things that she has said in movies or just sort of like she could record your alarm clock in the morning. You know what I mean? Just tell you to get out of bed. It would be wonderful. The way she says in 30 Rock, uh, what is she? She accuses Liz Liz Lemon of filling a slanket with her farts. (laughs) And it's. How she didn't win an Emmy for that, I'll never understand. We even have um, in our theme music her giving the best sort of diss 
in uh, like Oscar deep. Poor water. Movie. Poor water. You know what, Chris? I'm just gonna say we'll get to we'll it. get to it. Um, uh, this movie though, Ask the Dust, it is it holds a little bit of a particular niche in Oscar buzz lore because it is the directorial product of the the most recent, probably final. He's still with us, but um. Hasn't made a movie since this film. Robert Town, the legendary screenwriter of Chinatown. That's what he's won his Oscar for. He is one of the great screenwriters when you talk about like classic 70s sort of new Hollywood. That kind of Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Mike Nichols, you know era where Hollywood sort of reinvigorated itself from the studio system. Robert Town was an integral part of that. Um, so he holds sort of a place of reverence, I would say, among people who sort of people who value that sort of old Hollywood type, the Jack Nicholson crowd in the Academy, yeah. let's say. So when it was announced that he was going to be coming back with a new movie, his first since 1998's Without Limits, I always forget the title of that movie, Without Limits, um, which actually like snagged a Golden Globe nomination for Donald Sutherland, surprisingly enough. Nobody, people forget that. Um, it's only his fourth film he ever directed, which is crazy. He's obviously far better known as a screenwriter, um, but he's still, like I said, this legendary name. So in 2006, uh, this project came along and it was starring Colin Farrell, who was a hugely hot leading man at the time, Salma Hayek, um, Sutherland back again in a supporting role. And it was based on this novel, Ask the Dust. And so everybody sort of knew what it was about. It had this kind of LA, again, it was, you know, it was the Chinatown thing. It's once again into that kind of LA noir. This is much more sort of like literary sad boy than like detective noir, but there's still that kind of, well, yeah, I mean, it's LA the same thing. thing with Chinatown, too. It's not just talking. We're not just talking about Hollywood establishment, but we're also talking about this kind of fetishization of the history of Los Angeles as well. Um, That's because it. it's yeah. this legendary book from the 20s. It's, you know, considered one of the great novels to use. like Inspired Bukowski, this whole sort of thing. Right. Um, so th- some of that goes into it. It's like, it's kind of like this Ouroboros of Los Angeles eating its own tail in the film industry yeah. that kind of leads into the significance of what this movie kind of represents. Right. So it was not a surprise that people looked at this movie and thought, you know, maybe like that's, it was, there was definitely some possibility on this project on the horizon. So obviously it didn't, it didn't do much of anything. It was released in March. It that year was sort of shaped up. That was one of those years where everybody was looking to the very end of the year, kind of from the beginning because dream girls was coming. And because what were the other sort of big ones at the beginning of the year? Because that was the, one of those things that I thought was very interesting about 2006. And we'll get into this is that like the departed wasn't on the radar until kind of late, which was rare for a Scorsese movie. Um, but I think to be just more of a money movie. Um, right, right. This was, this was back to basic Scorsese. This was him just being a crowd pleaser. Well, in little miss sunshine, when it hit Sundance at the very beginning of the year, yeah, thought to be a player throughout the year because people loved it. The second they saw it. Right. 
But so this movie premiered in March, which is already like, I think by the time it even premiered, there was a little bit of the air had gone out of the sales because like, why, if this movie is so great, why are you premiering it in March? Well, that was one of my it, questions. Cause when I was doing background research before watching the movie, I could have sworn and I couldn't find anything to back it up. So maybe you can help me out here that this was one of those movies that was originally supposed to be a year end release the year before and got pushed. Yeah. And I could have sworn that was the case for this I, movie. It plays like one of those movies. Instinctually. I think that is true. I also don't have any proof, but like that feels like, it was because again, that's I think why it felt so disappointing is because at that point, you know, you feel like the studio is already sort of giving you the clue that like, yeah, this didn't really do what we thought it was going to do. It's not going to do what we think it's going to do. Um, opened in, in March, didn't really do a whole lot. I'm going to look up the box office really quick because I didn't really think we would need to. Um, sure because I got a million dollars. Ooh, let's see. Um, so I looked this up as well. We have less than a million on the board. You uh, would be correct. It grossed total domestic $743,000. So yeah. God, remember Paramount classics though? Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> rest in peace, Paramount classics sort of turned into Paramount vantage but that was going on at the same time, though, because this is also the year of Babel, which was, correct me if I'm wrong, a Paramount Vantage, at least co-produced movie? Uh, I will say Ask the Dust was released only two months before the most profitable profitable film in Paramount's classics history. Do you want to take a hazard as to what that movie was? I looked this up and I totally forget. Um, it's me. a documentary. Inconvenient Truth. It's an Inconvenient Truth, which ended up winning Best Documentary at the Oscars that year. And Best Song, the rare documentary to win multiple awards at the Oscars. Um, Yeah, that was the highest grosser in Paramount Classics history with $24 million, Um, which is actually phenomenal for a documentary that sounds, you know, backhanded, but it's not. Um, So... Yeah, it didn't really take very long. It's not like this was waiting until nomination morning to know whether it was going to be a flop with the Oscars. We all sort of knew. But again, this is a movie where the anticipation is a lot more interesting than the result, right? Because Well, yeah, because it was also, I mean, you're talking about a historic novel and a project that even Robert Town had had in development for quite some time, or at least yeah, it was just like it shortly after yeah. Chinatown, but there were serious plans shortly before the movie was actually filmed too, because Johnny Depp was attached at one point. Johnny Depp feels a much better fit for this role. I don't think Colin Farrell is bad for this movie, but I think this movie does not capitalize on a lot of the reasons why you would get Colin Farrell for a movie. I mean, it's almost just like kind of reducing him to his look or like what he looks like, because there were several times in this movie where I was asking literally out loud, how old is he supposed to be? (laughs) Selma Hayek refers to him as a boy several times. And sometimes it's supposed to be like, she's instigating him or she's like trying to intimidate him, but she, he's referred to as a young man. So many yeah. times. It's it's strange. It's not a great fit. We'll get into it in a second. I did want to like linger on Robert Town a little bit, though, because he's um, I think this is a very interesting sort of corner of the Oscar bait landscape in that uh, 
he's the great talent who has been sort of off of the map for a while. He, like I said, he directed four movies. They were Personal Best in 1982, Tequila Sunrise in 1988, Without Limits in 1998, and then, again, another almost 20 years, 18 years from Without Limits. Or, sorry, yeah. 10. God. So it's like you have these gaps between all of Yeah. These big gaps. Obviously, his big uh, his biggest successes were the screenplays. He was a four-time Oscar nominee, one for Chinatown, nominated for The Last Detail and Shampoo and Greystoke. Greystoke is an odd one. Um, it's it's just like you know one of these things yeah. doesn't belong here. He was uncredited on scripts for Bonnie and Clyde and the Parallax View. He's one of those Hollywood guys who sort of teams up with a movie star and then they become this sort of like package deal where he was Warren Beatty's go-to guy for a while in the seventies with shampoo with uh, heaven can wait um, that sort of easy riders, raging bulls era. If you've ever read that book Um, town was a pretty big figure in there. And then in the nineties, he and Tom Cruise kind of, hitched their wagons well, to Tom each other. Cruise was he, attached uh, at one point to this did, movie and he ended up being a producer, which would have been hilarious. Tom Cruise playing not only like an Italian American, but like somebody who like is mentioned as an Italian American a bajillion times during the film. Like it already is kind of an odd fit on Colin Farrell. He is sort of that sort of like, you know, dark haired black Irish kind of a thing. But Tom Cruise is a whole other ball of wax there i feel like then i think as the dust becomes a campy level disaster piece right oh it's so close to it already (laughs) i mean yeah i think it's mostly just sort of a little snoozy and it's big emotional beats sort of on like sail well under the uh (laughs) net there but um I think, yeah, so he, Town did screenplay work on The Firm and Mission Impossible, and this sort of, I feel like Tom Cruise kind of goes through these guys periodically, right? Where right, it's Christopher McQuarrie right now. Exactly, exactly. So, and then, you know, since Without Limits, and Without Limits was fairly well received and, you know, did pretty okay, but like, it wasn't Chinatown, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. another thing, it's like... When you have this sort of like huge, like Chinatown's one of the defining films of like the American film industry, right? So it's hard to top that. And yet, if Chinatown was the only thing he ever did, he could have, you know, dined out on that for the rest of his life. So he, that's one of those films where anything he would have done after that is going to have some level of he could do that again. He could make that because again. the glow so, of it is so huge and has such a wide reach that it's like instantly whatever you attach your name to yeah. has that sheen. Right. So that's, it's understandable, but I, I think you see that kind of instinct with, you know, the way we look ahead at movies sometime, I think Roman Polanski winning in 2002, winning the Best Director Award in 2002 for The Pianist, served as kind of a backup for people who were like, see, it can happen. Like, you know, these greats from the 70s don't have to stay there. They can 
come back and they can still be relevant. It's not like Polanski didn't work from there, but I think of somebody like, well, and to your point though, about how those type of classic figures, especially in the shadow of these huge movies that are like kind of paragons of the industry. I mean, that who he was in the movies he did even before his crimes had so much to do with that win too, because people who were voting for that were not just voting for the pianist. They were also voting for Chinatown and to, and Rosemary's baby and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point. But I think what I'm saying is these figures, then I think Polanski winning then kind of bolstered that idea that like we can, you know, we can go home again. I think unless you were so absolutely his, his win was kind of justification, at least in the thinking of when you're, thinking about the Oscar season to come or doing predictions that it, it serves a justification that the mindset of former glory people can reclaim that again. Because unless you were Scorsese or even, you know, to a lesser extent Coppola and kept working, you know what I mean? Like Scorsese never stopped working. That's why he was able to go from the seventies to the eighties, to the nineties to today, you know, your biggest hits of the seventies, eighties and today. Um, Clint Eastwood as well. Clint Eastwood as well. So those directors never felt like they just kept moving. Um, Say what you will about the quality of their films as they went along, they kept moving. And, Um, somebody like Robert town was a little bit of a relic. I think about this a lot now because as we're, as we're recording this, um, the, uh, the new Paul Schrader movie first reformed is in theaters now and it's getting great reviews. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen it yet? I see it in a few days. Um, cause it hasn't opened here yet. Um, but it's almost getting these like weirdly backhanded, um, like raves, like it makes you wonder if Ask the Dust had been good, uh-huh. what how the response would have been because people, it's almost like the tone of these raves for first reformed are like, we thought Paul Schrader sucked now. I mean, after the canyons, I don't know what other, you know, conclusion you could have come to. I mean, he did some other bad movies. He did. That, well, but that's what I mean. Like, it's, I feel like that reputation is earned. Now, I, 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 haven't heard even the backhandedness. I've just heard like huge compliments. Like you've got to see this movie. It's really great. I think it's going to end up being one of the better reviewed films of the year. I don't think it necessarily has Oscar prospects, but there's an angle to be played there. It's because it's the writer of taxi driver and taxi driver being such a huge Oscar success. And another movie like Chinatown that is like indelible in the American fabric of Hollywood. Yep. That especially is always going to of Hollywood that we particularly in this age revere very highly. Sure. Of course it's a, I mean, I have very mixed feelings about that whole thing because it was such a dude dominated scene in the, in the States at least yeah. like, you know, in Europe and whatever that, you know, there were maybe there was a little bit more of a mix, but what's interesting I though, think, if I mean, sure, we'll get to it in when we get to the actual Oscar conversation, is like that does play out in the Oscar year that we're talking about with Ask the Dust. You, it's very male dominated. You even see that era yeah. of male revered filmmaker and storyteller getting their due. All of that stuff. Yeah. Like everything we're talking about does come to fruition, but not with this movie. 
So I want to talk about Colin Farrell for a second because his career at this point is really interesting. So he comes on the scene in it's 2000, right? Is Tigerland? Yes. Um, Joel Schumacher directed sort of a star is born kind of a moment. All of a sudden, everybody's like Colin Farrell, this guy, you've got to see him. He's great in the movie. A lot of butts in that movie. Have you seen Tigerland? Uh, I remember should, reading so much about it when that movie came out, and I don't think it ever opened here. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it was small. It was pretty small. I don't think I saw it till it was a, a DVD release. But um, almost immediately then, he's you know he's Jesse James in American Outlaws. He's starring opposite. Is it Pacino in Hearts War? No, Bruce Willis in Bruce Hearts Willis. War. He started up. He was opposite Pacino in The Recruit. Right, and then he's in two thousand two. He's second in command to Tom Cruise in Minority Report in the kind of a role that feels like the entire film is being like, look at this heir apparent to Tom Cruise, right? Yeah. So all of that happens within like three years. He is the next big thing for sure. And so as somebody who is both, he's and he's not only the next big thing, he's like the thinking man's the next big thing. Where like he's... Irish and tortured and internal and the roles that he plays are, you know, he's not this like swinging dick, you know, action star. He is, you know, a grown up, you know what yeah. I mean? He's like, he's our next grown up movie star. He's our next Tom Cruise. Um, that can go from there. those more like mainstream dad movies or like the yeah. foil to the action star in the bigger movies. And right. then also do these, you know, more intimate dramas. And to be fair, he backed it up. He wasn't this sort of like, you know, paper tiger. He was, he brought it when, you know, maybe not like, you're not going to make hearts war into greatness, but like, he's great in minority report. He's great in tiger land. He's great in phone booth. Like he carries phone booth, a fucking ridiculous. I was going to ask you about phone booth because he's incredible in phone booth. Yes, he, he absolutely is. And Are, that movie got in any in any lesser hands, that movie is a piece of shit. And actually. it's a Joel Schumacher movie. And I mean, yeah. like it, he does truly convince you that the movie is so much better than it is. Our listeners should totally go back and watch phone booth that they haven't yet just for his performance. Cause it's like 80 minutes. It is. I was going to say it's so short. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun though, but I mean, it's even fun because of Colin Farrell. Um, yeah, it's true. Also, he's the best thing in Daredevil, which is a terrible movie, but he is a lot of fun. Well, and Daredevil he, came along. He and the Jennifer Garner training montage are the two best things in Daredevil. <laughs> the two things worth watching in that movie. Do you remember that training montage set to Evanescence? Yes. Ah, that was amazing. I feel like that whole um, movie was set to Evanescence, probably. Yeah, um, they, that, that was the movie that like broke them out. Yeah. Wake me up yeah. inside. It's indeed. Um... um so I think by the time you hit the mid 2000s, though, I think this was around the time of like, oh, we got to get him that Oscar nomination. Like all of a sudden something happened. We're like, he should have one by now. Well, he had sort of, the whole down the like down slope around Daredevil, too, because he also had a sex tape at that time. And like there was a although, little bit of a bad boy reputation. Say, and this was part of the upswing away from that. He had a drug problem. He had a he had, you know, attained a reputation. There was the whole Britney Spears thing. Um, I will say about that sex tape, nobody wants to have a sex tape out, but that sex tape makes him look like 
the world's most considerate lover. And also, like, I feel like that sex tape did nothing but good things for him because it really, truly, I look at that and I'm just like, this is the best of sex tapes. This is really, like, as far as, like, you compare that with, like, the Tommy Lee, Pamela Anderson thing, where it's just, like, God, this is too <laughs> trash. Whereas you watch, the, you watch the Colin Farrell one and I'm just like, wow, like, they're really just, like, really into pleasuring each other. And, like, I don't know. He's... <laughs> I have thoughts about the Colin Farrell sex tape. Anyway, this is not a podcast about the Colin Farrell sex tape. That is for our side hustle. Um, <laughs> this so, had some other kind of buzz. This had yes. So, but I think, <laughs> I think starting in 2004, which again, these are all movies that we could end up talking about home at the end of the world. Alexander. A lot of those choices also feel like a response to the kind of star pressure that was put on him because you're talking about, Smaller movies. He's going away from... Well, except for Alexander, but yeah. Well, except for Alexander. Um, but, I mean, you could look at Oliver Stone more as an auteur. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think you're you're right. I was nitpicking, but you're absolutely right. In that he... It, it's almost like a response to the short-lived bad boy era that he had. And he starts getting a little more serious about yeah. his choices. So, and then I feel like 2006... I mean, it's not like he ever, like, stopped working. He kept working, but, like, the New World was very well received, but he was sort of lost in that melange a little bit. I think that was much more a cinematographer's movie than anything else, and rightly so. He was never the story of Um, Right. And, like, Miami Vice, which is this weirdly, like, critically championed movie that was such a commercial underperformer that it sort of got hung with the bomb tag even though like every especially the men every male critic i talk about talk to about miami vice fucking i haven't seen miami vice but you know i'm not a michael mann guy so like i'm not the one to talk to about it but like the people who are love it and love you know i think that's where a lot of like the love i think people really root for Colin Farrell and really kind of ride for him. And I think the double of the new world and Miami vice and then in Bruges in 2008, really well, kind of to your that. point, like there's going to be a lot of other Colin Farrell movies we're going to talk about. So there's going to be, or we'll have the opportunity yeah. to talk about. So th- this will be a part of our conversation again later, but Colin Farrell's just such an interesting performer in that he seems yeah. to just keep revealing different layers and different sides to himself because he's doing different kinds of things all the time, especially now that he's been working with Yorgos Lanthimos and delivering his best performances, in my opinion, with Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah. It, it, I think he's just going to be someone that we appreciate more and more, but I hope that it gets to the level that it's like, we need to recognize this person. Cause what do you think, What's it going to take for Colin Farrell to become an Oscar nominee? Or do you think that he will eventually be one? I think so. I feel like it feels it's fully crazy that it hasn't happened by now because he also it's weird that he had he weathered the storms that he has in terms of bad reputation, you know, Drinking and drug issues. Bad movies. <laughs> uh, bad movies. And yet, um, but it never, it was never this like prolonged period of failure for him to like have a proper comeback because, 
you know, you would have the new world every once in a while. You would have in Bruges where he won like a golden globe. You would have, um, I mean, I guess he did go through a really fallow period between in Bruges and like seven psychopaths, I it's suppose. But like, that's only like doesn't four go years. Away, Do you know what I mean? And like, also is never really bad except for this movie. <laughs> like he never, it's, right. it's not like one of those things where it's like, suddenly you're doing really great work again. It just feels like we're getting more and more layers of him still doing really good work. Yeah. But I think you're right about the Lanthimos thing, like between the lobster and killing of a sacred deer. And I would say he's great in Roman day Israel, like in a in a role that like doesn't reward him in any way. Not in any way. Um, and even in The Beguiled, which is like... Oh, yeah, I know. love him in that movie, too. I mean, he's also great in Imbruge, too, which felt like the closest, but Oscar was not ready to reward that movie because he got the... Even as he that. was winning the... Even as he was winning the Golden Globe for that, nobody ever took it as a possibility that that could transfer over into the Best Actor race that year, which is a bummer because he's... That's one of the better Golden Globe moments of the last maybe ever. Like, it's such a well-deserved award. It makes me happy that there is the Golden Globes because they get shit on all the time. But, like, they'll do stuff with that. I don't – I mean, I don't know what it's going to take because it does just feel like he's one great role away from doing it. I think the second he gets a movie that is down Oscars, like, bowling alley – I think he gets it. I think they're not going to go for the killing of a sacred deer. They're not going to go for the beguiled. They're not going to go for the lobster, even though they got, you know, that's a screen. That's a screen. Well, his, what you know he's what I mean? doing is not the type of thing that they award leading actors for doing. Um, right. I think you're right. I think it's going to take him giving one of his better performances in a movie that plays to them really well, that they go for the movie. Yeah. Do you think it's a best actor or a best supporting actor if you were to put money on it? Do you think if he gets a nomin his first nomination is going to be I think lead it's going to be lead because he doesn't really play supporting roles. He does. He just really blends well in, you know, it's Roman J Israel. It's Well, yeah, it's like um, the Roman J Israel performances where he blends in that it's not really his show unless right. he like I don't know, the performance that comes to mind is like Brad Pitt 12 Monkeys if he does something yeah. crazy that's just right. like a scene stealer in a movie which I could but see again, honestly like he plays he plays strange well just he I don't know I I hesitate to say oh he's too good to get an Oscar nomination because I think think that's a false He's too hard to place down. Like this is what Colin Farrell does. Or so it's like, it's hard to say when he is at his peak. Cause even yeah. lobster, which is my favorite performance of his. Do I feel like it's a signature role for him that it's like, these are the things that we love Colin Farrell for. And this is the yeah. performance that shows all those things. And it's not, if anything, it's the performance that shows his versatility. And that's one of the things we love him for. I will say within five years, I think he's going to get an Oscar, his first Oscar nomination. We can throw down some money on this because I would say it's not going to happen. You Do you think it's ever going to happen? I, I think it's not happening in five years. Okay. Throw a 20 I'll on it? I'll throw a 20 on it. Right All now, right. listeners, hold yeah. us accountable to this. Hold us accountable. Colin, make me $20 richer. Um, I want to talk about Salma Hayek next because she's, I think, you know, we can talk about the other performers when we get into you know, when we go over the movie, but Salma Hayek, 
she had the Oscar nomination in 2002 with Frida. That felt like she really made that movie happen. She made that nomination happen. She has, she has figured out the hustle of Hollywood, I think very successfully. And she sort of goes back and forth between these sort of like, you know, movie roles. She she'll pop up in a movie and has for a long time, even back to like dogma in like 99 or whatever, where it's like, just be really funny in this small part. But, and also it's just in these parts where it's just like Salma Hayek's in this movie. Like she became a big deal very quickly. I think she marketed herself very well. She and you know, her team or whatever. Um, I think a movie like ask the dust is hoping that she gives you maybe a Penelope Cruz performance. And I don't think she's mm-hmm. your Penelope Cruz actress. I think God, whoever figured out that she could do Beatrice at dinner is a goddamn genius. I was going to say like for, I think the Salma Hayek resurgence of like getting her into awards conversations again, granted, I loved Beatrice at dinner. Me too. Attach it. I think her working with Mike white is so inspired. And like, I think, if she's working with people like that, that can pull out these different layers of her. Cause she's already such a natural performer. Yeah. I think I, I want to see her do interesting, unexpected things because I think she's someone we take for granted quite a bit that she does show up in these supporting roles and like, she can just sell the shit out of whatever she's asked to do to like land yeah. a punchline or be, you know, I think she plays yeah. a lot of girlfriends and wives sometimes, but I think that's true. And I think this movie sort of asks, wants her to be like, Oh, be the like fiery Mexican girl who cannot be tamed. And it's just sort of like, I don't die know tragically. Happen. But I, I mean, beyond that, it doesn't ask her to do anything. Um, Can we talk about, by the way, how she dies tragically in this movie via the, uh, the consumptive red spattered napkin of death. Like like blood on her pillow that she's like dying in this bed. It's horrible. Like this movie took all the wrong messages from Moulin Rouge. (laughs) This movie has a whole opening sequence that like, first of all, it looks like an old like sixties era Disney movie because it's literally a book opening and you go into the book. Oh, and do you know that is like the full, like, commercial book jacket for Ask oh yeah the it's the if like listeners look up the wikipedia page for the book that is the book that opens the movie it might as well have had the poster of ask the dust the movie on it like <laughs> that morose poster <laughs> that it also looks like that movie was like and that the cinematographer was i want to say caleb deschanel yes, right was. i wrote that down but like that movie feels like it has like an instagram filter on it like an Whereas all of a sudden it's just like dusty sepia. Like we're close enough to Mexico. To try to hide how uh shitty the sets are in this movie. Like this movie is so weirdly stagey. It looks a little bit like no offense to the costume designers and set designers in this movie. It looks like a bad community theater. Like it looks like it's like one piece of Uh wood plywood to his hotel room door. And like Donald Sutherland, every time he comes into this, into Colin Farrell's hotel room, looks like he's going to break that door off its hinges. Uh, Costumes designed by two time Oscar winner, Albert Walski, by the way. Sorry, Albert Walski. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, so it's the like, movie is so obviously 
tied to its literary roots that it takes me out of it in a way where it's like not only just the voiceover, but like in that way, in that sort of like Hotel New Hampshire way where it's just like everybody in this flop house has a story. Yeah. There is, you know, Eileen Atkins is the is the proprietress and she's very New England and she wants to make it look like a East Hampton yada yada or whatever. And uh, Donald Sutherland is I at the beginning I was like, is he gay or is he addicted to drugs? And going fifty one forty nine, like I'm not quite sure where I fall on that. Um there's like any number of like young girl with a dream comes to Hollywood. Very sort of Lily James esque faces. None of them were Lily James, but they all sort of have that. You That's know that all thing of those like, actresses. Yeah. Proto Lily James. Um None of it's captivating. It all sounds like it probably works a whole lot better as a novel. And and then you get to these sort of side characters played by Justin Kirk and Adina Menzel, which can we take a break and just say, in 2006, I had very strong feelings about both Adina Menzel and Justin Kirk. Um, Justin Kirk had been in Angels in America in 2003 and like blew my face off, was absolutely amazing. Um, and I think had already started Weeds. I think Weeds started before Ask the came out. That so sounds like, right. Or Weeds would be start like Weeds would have started right after this movie came out. He was having a moment. And then the Rent movie had come out the year before. And my first exposure to Rent was the movie, which, you know, dragged me to hell. But the movie did. Um, yeah, I we're not going to get into the Rent movie. We're really not. It's a <laughs> whole discussion for another topic. And we are over time. But um I was very aware, let's say, of Idina Menzel and very enthusiastic about seeing her in anything. Never really quite occurred to me what an odd fit this movie was for her. I think, honestly, the role in this movie was just like passably Jewish. And then she comes in and they're like, they're whoa, like, be like, crazy. We're uh, um, crazy. Like, OK, here's what I will say about Idina Menzel in this movie, because I do not think the performances in this movie are good by any stretch but right i think the role that adina menzel is playing which is essentially drunk sad woman who is uh, were those burns i forget she she's disfigured they were scars her legs are all scarred up from some her, something her, and she never believes she doesn't believe any man will ever her, love her and she's hung up and on she Colin. like essentially forces herself drunkenly onto colin farrell and eventually he falls for it and like they just have this very sad existence together i feel like her role is like borderline i mean most of this movie is borderline offensive if not offensive but i feel like adina menzel is the best performance in this movie like i was actually absorbed in what she was doing I think she's good in this movie. I think her parts of the movie are weird enough that they grab my attention. The part where like he runs away from her at the bar and she's waiting there for him in the hotel when he gets back. It's so and it's funny. very it's, it's very like Pepe Le Pew where it's just like, Hello my love. <laughs> um, she's a sad Pepe Le Pew in this movie. Yes. And then the fact that like they get married and they have this sort of like gorgeous actually house by the ocean and next to a roller coaster. They're oh right, that's what it was. They're by the roller coaster. It's the house by the ocean is where he lives with Salma Hayek. Um, but the fact that like there's such an obvious sham marriage that he like fully just sort of like tells her everything about him and Salma Hayek, like their yeah. girlfriends. I fucking love that. Like it's all like all of that is very like weird and strange. Whereas Justin Kirk, who I think is a phenomenal actor, is just given this like thankless role of he's the 
the bartender at the diner that Salma works at, she's in love with him. He like borderline despises her. He beats her up. Um, is horrible, horribly sexist. He beats her up. He's and everything that he's given to do, he doesn't do it convincingly. He has this whole monologue to Colin Farrell about like she's a you know she's a beast that must be tamed or whatever, and none of it comes across convincingly. It, it I guess something to just Justin Kurt's performance that the most convincing thing about it is the horrible bleach blonde sun in highlights that he has. He's like. Which I'm certain that Robert Town did his homework for this movie, but it just feels out of care, out it's of time. So that gross. It's weird. And, yeah. and yet it's still the most convincing thing that Justin Kirk has to do. So this movie doesn't work at all. It, at all. So, but I want to talk about the 2006 Oscars very quickly. Um, not very quickly. We'll have a little bit of a talk about it. Yeah. It's a super weird year. We talked a little bit about Scorsese and the departed and how this was coming on the heels of the aviator, which was the closest he had come to winning yet where like even going up until Oscar night, I was like, all right, he's going to win one of them. He's going to win director or picture. It will probably split million dollar baby. will get one and he'll get the other and it's fine. And I, everybody sort of assumed that he would get director and then million dollar baby would get picture. And then he lost both. And I think at that point, because The Aviator came after Gangs of New York, which was another like two years almost of Will Scorsese win, I think everybody at that point was exhausted, Yeah, was like utterly exhausted. And so The Departed came and we're like, good, we don't have to worry about it being Oscar bait. It's just a gangster movie. It's just a popcorn movie. He is here to please his loyalists and we don't have to care about will he or won't he win like it felt like a vacation to everybody was i the only one who sort of felt that no that's definitely how the movie was sold and that's how it was brought to audiences and the movie people loved the movie and i feel like it wasn't just that the movie was a big hit and people actually loved this movie it was that it reminded us that this is the scorsese we actually want he was working in this other mode for these movies that we were given a hard sell specifically an oscar hard sell on that even if they made money people didn't really love those movies and this was one that we actually did and he was doing the things that we love him for i remember at some point because that first trailer came out and it looked good and i remember at some point this was pre-twitter but we were on like message boards back then and people just sort of started being like wait a second this trailer looks really good Like, do we think, and I think there was a physical sense of just like, no, stop it. Don't say it. Don't like, even if it's going to happen, let's not ruin it. Like, let's just sort of enjoy it. And then. Because it was an October release and it even took like, even before you start getting into critics awards and everything, it still took a little warming up after the movie was starting to leave theaters too, because it was just a box office hit at that point And it had right. good reviews. It still took like, it feels like it was even warming up to that Oscar win as people were yeah. voting. The great thing about the 06 Oscars is it's the last time that I feel like it was a true, five movie race for the crown this year came a little bit close to that in that like we were still thinking like there was an outside chance that like ladybird could pull it out this year even though there wasn't a ton of evidence no. to suggest that but i think everybody figured it would be so split because you had so, so many movies that were outright loved by people and kind of widely loved right. by people 
So 06, like a different, like Babel won the globe and little miss sunshine won the sag and departed was the Scorsese favorite. And I think the queen must've won BAFTA. Right. And I don't think it did. I think. Okay. Well, anyway, the queen was also like, you know, winning stuff hand over fist. And then Eastwood comes in with letters from Iwo Jima and everybody like stopped in their tracks and was like, oh, fuck. Like he couldn't do it again, could he? I, w- I actually really love letters from Iwo Jima. I think it's a really good movie. Um, but I think that movie sort of had everybody's blood run cold for a second and just like he couldn't do it to Scorsese again. Could he? <laughs> um, but the other big storyline in 06 was the three amigos with Inuritu getting the Best Picture, Best Director nomination with Pan's Labyrinth doing so well and bringing Guillermo del Toro into the Oscar fold with, for as much as Children of Men, infuriatingly underperformed at awards time, even I think mostly because it was released too late in the year to build up any kind of groundswell. And moved its its opening date around a bunch, too. Um, Yeah, like severely. Um, I'd never had a plan for that movie. But I love the fact that somebody was smart enough to brand that them together. And like, you know, Three Amigos is sounds cartoonish and so almost like childish, but it was really smart in it that. Play, it's played out for years. It's helped get the other two their Oscars. They all have now well, won. all three because yeah. Inuritu didn't win this year. Right. Um, but they've now all won Best Director Oscars. It is... Honestly, one of the late great stories, but I also think of, again, 2006, Salma Hayek was in the middle of all this so that even though If Has the Dust didn't do it, she still had her moment. I'm going to play an audio clip that I selected. It will solve the mystery of if any of you are wondering why Salma Hayek is in our intro talking about water. Um, I'm just going to play it. For best foreign film language... We have from Denmark, from Denmark after the wedding, from Algeria, days of glory, from Germany, the lives of others, from Mexico, pants laughing, <laughs> <laughs> and from Canada, water. It brings up so much, so many emotions for me. Chris. It's really I good. will laugh every time. It's so this okay. was I. The reading, I just want to explain what, it, what we yeah. all heard, because not everybody watches this clip on the daily like we do. Like um, we do. <laughs> this was Oscar nomination morning for the 06 Oscars. Salma Hayek was reading the nominations with the president of the Academy. She had already, when Penelope Cruz was n- announced as a Best Actress nominee, like full on like double fist pump, like, yes, like she got so hyped. But also, every time Mexico did anything got any kind of nomination she full-on breaks down into these sort of like she doesn't like sob but like she's her voice completely breaks she like takes a moment it is both incredibly endearing and lovely that she is so tied to mexico in every way it is also the actressiest thing ever in that like all of the focus is coming back to salma at all times and the fact that she gets so extra announcing Pan's Labyrinth as a best foreign language film nominee, even though it was no surprise that this was going to happen. Like this was absolutely a nominee that was going to come to pass. She fully lives her like Betty Davis fantasy in this moment. And then 
the downshift to utter deadpan bordering on disdain for this fucking movie water from fucking Canada with this white ass people that are going to try and like the, the utter disregard and disinterest in water. It happens so quickly and it's so funny. It's the non progression wieners of Oscar history. Yes. That is Chris in so few words you you got past all of my bullshit thank you that's exactly what well, I. well mean. and okay so here's the thing it's also all of those things you're saying about like her excitement for that that's exactly what we want and i'm gonna be take a while she leave. takes it as exactly as seriously yeah, as exactly, we do exactly and, that and that's why it's so fun her. because i'm gonna take a wild leap that people who are listening to our podcast are the people that are also watching these live oscar nomination announcements like the people who were pissed the year that it wasn't they did that pre-film garbage um but it's also like tiffany haddish this past year doing the nominations and being so animated about it too like this is what we want when we watch those Oscar nomination announcements. We want to see somebody who's getting into it. We want actresses being dramatic as fuck in non-prescripted moments. We want spontaneity. We want presidents of the Academy who are not telegenic. We want Kathy Bates and Sigourney Weaver and Marsha Gay Harden. And that is all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I'd like subject. to take it back for but, a second to the three amigos point too. And we were talking about these kind of, old Hollywood establishment things that build Oscar buzz for movies like ask the dust and then die away. It's we are currently, I think in an era where we are looking for a new Hollywood establishment in a way and in a way that's going to actually pay off because in terms of Oscars and it's like the three amigos are kind of like, that was a narrative that has played out to be like, this is the new establishment. These are the people that we can look to now because you have all of these movies like ask the dust, that it's this old Hollywood establishment that it goes nowhere. And even that audiences don't even want like this movie is relying on that type of reputation and it doesn't even make a million dollars. You're right though. The three amigos with like, this is the America liberals want. This is the Hollywood that, uh, (laughs) <laughs> that we want. But but it's like Oscar is also looking to, it's this weird relationship where it, there's a tonal shift going on, right? And you've kind of talked about it a little bit with costume dramas. Right. That the rules that we thought we were playing by aren't playing out anymore. And we're looking to, Oscar's kind of looking to restabilize what right. those we haven't, are or find them in new We haven't established the new rules yet, so we're in a really kind of like lawless time, which I think is very exciting if we can if we can make it exciting. And I think thus far, I think the last two years have been incredibly exciting. I think you look at the best picture lineups the last several years, they've been pretty stellar. Like I agree. I think I would even take it back further than two years, but I like Birdman. No, I no, and that is fully uh supportable. I think I love the 10 best picture nominees in almost all respects. I think, you know, more attention for more good movies. I think one of the, th- the drawbacks is it's harder to notice when a year, when a best picture category is stacked, when it's that many movies, because sometimes you just sort of take for granted that it's going to be, you know, all the cream sort of rising to the top. Whereas in old years, when you had like five killers in best picture, which was rare, like, yeah. Um, it was really noticeable, but like you, I would take that 2017 best picture lineup and stack it against 
any other year. I think it's, you know, quite something. Oh yeah. So, and 20, you know, 2016 too. So yeah. And I, I just, one of the things, just one last little button on the Salma Hayek clip. What I love about that in the context of what we're talking about is like, even in a year where your big best actress play, you know, you, at some point, somebody, either her or somebody on her team was like, had that thought in their head of like, maybe this could be another best actress nominee, even though that all goes kaput, an actress can still put her indelible stamp on an Oscar season. And I think there are, you know, if I'm going to name 10 people from the 2006 Oscar season who I remember associated with the Oscars, she's on that list for sure. I mean, we've probably uh, we've made our contribution to the world of getting more people to watch that clip than have watched the movie we were discussing today. Oh, utterly for sure. Utterly for sure. And if I'm going to recommend one of them to our listeners right now, I'm going to recommend the YouTube clip. You know what I mean? As the Dust is available to stream for free on Amazon Prime. But you know what? Go watch that YouTube clip. It's worth it. Um, Chris, this was a really good conversation. Do you have any last sort of things you want to bring up about it? Do we want to talk about the Moscow International Film Festival really quick? That it played. <laughs> <laughs> that it's it's the only item on the awards tab on IMDb for Ask the Dust. Say, it is, this year at the Moscow International Film Festival is insane. So that's, again... It's only it's only award is that it played at the Mos- <laughs> not, not that it won an award, but that it just was one of the films in competition at the Moscow International Film Festival. The only movie on this entire lineup that I recognize is Driving Lessons, the movie with Laura Linney and uh, Rupert Grint, who is better known as Ron Weasley from the Harry Potter movies, and Julie Walters who won the Best Actress Award at this Moscow Film Festival. I have not seen Driving Lessons. Have you I seen I have Driving not, Lessons? but I remember it getting kind of like this weird ooh, release because, I, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the plot points is Julie Walters and Robert Rupert Grant having sex in that movie. And they are, of course, mother and son from the Harry Potter franchise. But it's not like anybody saw the Harry Potter movie, so I don't know who would have been weirded out by that. That's. Are we sure it's Rupert? Because Laura Linney plays his mother. It is definitely Rupert Grant. No, but Laura Linney plays his mother, right? She's not the older woman that he has sex with? Okay. Because I remember the trailer, and she has a British accent, and I was like, oh, shit, I have to see this. Laura Linney's going to play British. I know. I should have seen it. I do love Laura Linney. Um, This is not a Driving Lessons podcast, although it could be. Um, that was Ask the Dust's only brush with awards that year or ever. Um, my only other note that I will have on Ask the Dusk and the 2006 Oscars is they're your dream girls. They'll make you happy. Yeah. RIP. Remember a time when we could look at a, a project with Beyonce in it and be like, oh, I wish they got someone else. Like the reaction to Beyonce and dream girls was ridiculous because she's great charitable she's wonderful in that and listen is a great song um i love melissa etheridge but there is no way that we i need to wake up we need to wake up whatever it is um was a better song than listen well and you you kind of touched on it a little bit that it was like dream girls was so out in front because they had that damn teaser and i think that damn teaser that had no footage in the movie that was like glistening and like basically like this will be next year's best picture winner that 
it puts such a sour taste in people's mouth that it completely derailed the movie. It was the classic Oscar frontrunner impress me movie where all of a sudden now people were like folding their arms and just be like, all right, you think you're that good? Like, show to me. To the point that people disproportionately hate that movie for what it is. I love the movie. I, I will ride hard for that movie. But like, I think I like. It. Well, and it's also like this. We're talking about the era where the finger quotes Oscar bait was a pejorative. Right. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's just wild to me that, like, especially with Oscar obsessives, like, they were probably the last demographic group to fully fall over to Beyonce. Because you also remember in 2004, at the 2004 Oscars, that was when she sang three of the nominated songs. And people were like, why her? And, like, we're so mean about it. All these sort of, like, bitchy Oscar queens were like, I wanted Minnie Driver to sing Born to be Lonely. I or want Learn to no be Lonely, one to sorry. sing Learn to be Lonely. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> It's so bad. We got to do that movie. God, we've got to do the Phantom of the Opera at some point. Um, Honestly. Um, But it is like that is one of the weird things to think about about the 2006 Oscars, about how disrespected and disregarded Beyonce was. Maybe that was to Beyonce what uh, Donald Trump at the correspondence dinner that one year where it was just like, nope, I'm going to, I don't want to, God, what am I doing comparing Beyonce to Donald Trump? Forget I ever said that. I'm going to get canceled. Let's cut that out. Ah! <laughs> Let's pretend Joe never compared Beyonce to Donald Trump ever. Huh. Um. All right. Parting, parting thoughts about Ask the Dust. My parting thought about Ask the Dust is we see a good bit of Colin Farrell's butt in this movie. We know it's his butt because it's in a continuous shot where we always see also see his face. It is a really cute butt. We do not see it enough in pop culture. I'm just saying we should see it more. Uh, I'm just saying listeners can also watch The Killing of a Sacred Deer where you also get his butt. And that one, I that took me right out of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, everything else with the mood in that movie and with his character. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Anyway, Colin Farrell. Good butt. (laughs) That's our closing part for Ask the Dust. Colin Farrell. Good butt. Colin Farrell. Good butt. And that's our episode, everybody. Uh, If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can and should also find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris V file. That's V F E I L after traditional spelling of Chris. I'm also a contributor on the film experience. I am writing about soundtracks every Wednesday and I'll be there talking about other stuff. Writing fantastically about soundtracks. It is one of the best reads on the internet. You shall go do it. All of your I, reads are some of the best reads on the internet. I I am one of the best reads on the internet because I am on Twitter That's at Joe me. Reed, spelled R-E-I-D. Uh, and every day you can also read me at Decider.com. Me and my co-workers at Decider always doing really good stuff covering film and television and everything else that is on streaming. Stop on by. You will not be disappointed. That is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Oh,